And we didn't have time for that this time. So in 11 months, uh, which is um, a lot faster than it's ever been done, we had these approvals um, based upon those rigorous trials uh, that these mRNA vaccines were safe and effective. And I got to say, when I got that first call, I cried. I mean, this was like <laughs> such an amazing response uh, to prayer and a lot of hard scientific work that yeah. it not only had worked, uh, the efficacy uh, was so much better than anybody had guessed. I thought we'd be lucky to get, you know, 60% effectiveness, 95, really? to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. I am so excited to share this conversation with you that I had with Dr. Francis Collins, who is the director of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Collins is a renowned scientist having led the Human Genome Project from 1993 until 2008. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2007 and the National Medal of Science in 2009 for his revolutionary contributions to genetic research. In his current role as the NIH director, he oversees the work of the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world, spanning the spectrum from basic to clinical research, and he also played a key role in our response to the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccine development. I felt it was important to have a conversation here on the podcast about the COVID-19 vaccine to hopefully shed some light on what we know, what we don't know, and the risks and benefits of getting the vaccine versus potentially becoming infected with COVID. I want to emphasize here that this is in no way meant to have a political agenda. And the fact of the matter is, we all have to decide whether or not we are going to get the vaccine and being informed and weighing all the information available is important for each of us in making that decision. Personally, even though I'm in the medical field myself, I still had to do my own research and look to experts and mentors that I trusted before feeling comfortable moving forward to get the vaccine, and I'm so glad that I did. I am grateful that Dr. Collins, who's been living and breathing this work every day for over a year, was willing to sit down with me to talk about this topic. We cover a lot of ground here, including how the COVID-19 vaccine works, how it was developed, what we know about the impact of the vaccine on fertility and pregnancy, the impact of long COVID, and how lifestyle and precision medicine can play a role in the prevention of disease. We also spend some time discussing Dr. Collins' book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief, and how he reconciles his faith in God with his role as a scientist. You'll learn in the conversation that this book was my first exposure to Dr. Collins 12 years ago, and it had a profound impact on my life. We also even touch on the topic of CrossFit, and I think you'll be very impressed to hear how much Dr. Collins can deadlift at age 71. So again, I'm really grateful for having this conversation and that Dr. Collins was able to take the time to speak with me. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Now with that, let's get started with the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am very excited to be here with Dr. Francis Collins, director of the NIH today. Um, I know you are a very busy man, especially during these times. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm thrilled to be here with you so we can talk about all kinds of things related to health and particularly about how we're going to get COVID-19 out of here. Yes, (laughs) let's do it. And I do want to spend a bulk of our time talking about COVID-19 and especially vaccines, as that's sort of the focus right now. 
Um, and then towards the end, I'd love to talk to you a little bit too about your book, The Language of God, which we just had an opportunity to, to touch on before we started, but it's something that had a huge impact on me. And I think my listeners have heard me talk about it here before too. So that'll be fun. But yeah. starting off with, with vaccines, um, just sort of setting the stage right now, you know, all of us have this decision to make about whether or not to get vaccinated, whether we want to, you know, it's something we can't avoid. We're either deciding to get vaccinated or we're not and, and we're waiting or we're, or we're um, waiting to see how things sort of pan out. Um, and it can be easy, I think, for people to say, you know, this is new, it's been developed quickly, I'm just going to give it some time and wait and see when we have more data. But there really is so many different factors to consider here because by waiting, you're also having the risk of, of COVID-19 infection and potential complications from that, which could be long-term or severe. Nice. Um, and so it's, there's a lot of data to weigh in this risk benefit, you know, personal risk benefit analysis that each one of us has to do. Um, and so I'm hoping we can talk through some of those today and hopefully just give people more information to help make, help them make more informed decisions for themselves. Um, I would love to do that. And maybe in this conversation, if people are bringing certain expectations and rumors they've heard to the table, we could kind of put those aside and try to hit the reset button here on what the evidence is about the vaccines and why you might want to make a decision uh, to go forward, which I will tell you from the evidence I have seen is actually a very compelling case, but I'm glad to say why that is. Awesome. Well, let's just start off with what, how does the vaccine work? So specifically, let's focus on the Pfizer and Moderna, which are the most widely available, I believe, right now, at least in the U.S. How, how are those vaccines working? Well, some 25 years ago, the idea emerged that maybe you could use a new way that would be very efficient and rapid in terms of its design uh, to, to make a vaccine work. And that would be instead of injecting a killed version of the virus, which is sort of an old way of doing this, or even a purified protein component of the virus, which is still a current way, but it takes a while, Maybe you could instead instruct the body to make that protein, and then the immune system would see it and raise the appropriate antibody response. Well, how would you do that? What's the instruction? It's something called messenger RNA. So taking us back to biology 101, you know, DNA is the instruction book, carries all the information for a human being or for a virus. And then that has to be somehow messaged uh, through the amazing process of translation to make a protein. So it's the letters in that messenger RNA code that instruct what the protein is gonna look like. So one could, it seemed, use the messenger RNA that codes for the spike protein. Oh, let me get my little visual aid here. Oh, perfect. For people who can actually <laughs> see this. So yeah, this is my, uh, my pet rock. <laughs> this is the uh, coronavirus. And these are these spike proteins on the surface, which is the first thing your immune system sees. And it's also how it gets inside your cells. That spike protein binds to something called the ACE2 receptor on the surface of a cell in your airway. And then mm, the trouble starts. So if you could cover over those spike proteins with antibodies, then you wouldn't get uh, a risk of the disease. So you want to raise antibodies against spike. So why not? utilize as your vaccine, this messenger RNA that codes for that very protein injected into the muscle, which is what a vaccine does. The muscle goes, oh, that's messenger RNA. I know what to do with that. I'll make a protein. 
and it does. And then the immune system goes, oh, that doesn't look like me. That looks like something different. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to make an antibody against that. And then you are getting immunized because if downstream a few months from now, you encounter the actual virus, this guy comes lunging along going after you, your antibodies are already there and they say, oh, no, you don't. So that's how it works. Now, we'd never had vaccines made from messenger RNA before. This is the first time, but it's 25 years of hard work to figure out how to do this safely. And it had gone pretty far down the line with a previous coronavirus called MERS. And so when this one emerged, January 2020, our experts in the Vaccine Research Center at NIH said, hey, we know what to do. <laughs> Tell us the letters of that viral genome and we'll make a vaccine in 24 hours, a design. And 60 days later, it was going into that first phase one trial of human volunteers which is about 10 times faster than has ever happened before. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and while people may be a little nervous, boy, that was awful fast, but boy, when people are dying, you don't want to be slow. So it was a, a high motivation, as long as you could be really safe and careful about this, to try this approach that just might work. And it worked actually beyond the dreams that most of us had in terms of its efficacy, 95%, which is amazing. much higher than most people would have guessed possible for this coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And that's one of, I think, the major concerns that people have is just how quickly it was developed. And so you giving that context about how this type of vaccine has been under development for 25 years, and it's been you know, looked at in a very similar virus with the MERS virus provides a lot of context. Can yes. you talk to you about even since that January of 2020 time until the vaccine was available for use, it still was a very quick timeline. And can you talk about how what happened during that time differs from a sort of normal timeline for vaccine development? Well, yeah, and I'd be glad to because I, right I was right in the middle of this 24-7. <laughs> The typical way in which you develop a vaccine is, first of all, you do the design. And as I mentioned, that would generally take quite a bit longer than we did here. But then you run this small so-called phase one trial of volunteers. And you basically look to see, does this actually generate an antibody response? Does it look like the immune system is responding to this? And also, are there any really surprising uh, side effects that you would see it with just a few dozen people? If that goes well, then generally you're like, okay, now we need to mount a larger trial. Let's figure out where are we going to do that? How are we going to find the money for it? How are we going to do the design? And how are we going to get FDA to approve it? Months go by. Mm -hmm. And that would be a phase two trial. And then if that turns out to look promising, well, then you got to do the big trial, which for these COVID-19 vaccines, that's 30,000 people. And that takes a long time to set up. Many more months, often years go by before you get that started. So you see, there's all that dead time that happens. Mm -hmm. We were determined with this global pandemic, with people dying, that we could not tolerate the dead time. So let's do the planning right from the beginning. Even if it turned out the vaccine failed early, we wanted to have the steps ready in case it worked. Mm -hmm. And so that meant you had your phase two and your phase three plans, and you were talking to FDA from the beginning about how to make sure your protocol was going to meet their standards. And even 
that you were willing to put money into manufacturing millions of doses of these vaccines before you knew if they were going to work. And you might just have to throw them all out. Mm -hmm. But if they did work, you didn't want to have the long gap at the end of all this while you had to set up a factory and months went by while people are dying and you didn't have any doses. So all of that, which was part of something called Operation Warp Speed, which was an unfortunate name because it sounded <laughs> a little bit fast and loose, and it wasn't. <laughs> all of that was done in a way that's never been done before. But I will absolutely defend the rigor of every step and the data that came out of this, which was all made completely public, including from those large 30,000 person trials, so that anybody who wanted to know what's the evidence that this actually worked and it was safe, mm -hmm. they could go and look at all those data points and make their own judgment. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And I love that transparency. And I think anyone who's had any experience with research can appreciate how much dead time there normally is, whether it's just enrolling patients, whether it's fund, fundraising or finding the funding, waiting for IRB approvals, all these things take months and months and months. All of that. You got it. Absolutely. And we didn't have time for that this time. So in 11 months, uh, which is um, a lot faster than it's ever been done, we had these approvals um, based upon those rigorous trials uh, that these mRNA vaccines were safe and effective. And I got to say, when I got that first call, I cried. I mean, this was like <laughs> such an amazing response uh, to prayer and a lot of hard scientific work that yeah. it not only had worked, uh, the efficacy uh, was so much better than anybody had guessed. I thought we'd be lucky to get, you know, 60% effectiveness, 95? Really? Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's amazing. And like you said, so many steps that you went through to prepare even if it didn't work, and it seems like I'm sure there was a lot of bumps along the way that you were, you know, you were in the thick of it every day, but, but seeing it seems like really probably the best possible outcome that, that we could have expected. And all of this was looking closely at safety. And I know how worried people are about that. And so FDA wouldn't even consider looking at the data until at least half of the people in the trial had been followed for at least two months to see if there were any surprise adverse events. Mm -hmm. And that's important because when you have an adverse event from a vaccine that you didn't expect, it almost always happens in the first two months. So this was a good interval to watch for that and not to find it. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the other <sighs> argument is, is waiting for more long-term data. Like we know that, you know, how patients have done in those first few months, <sighs> but obviously no patient has had this vaccine and we can't look at them five or 10 years later. Um, so what do you, what do you, what gives you um, peace of mind to know or to still believe that this is the, the best course of action, even though we don't have that longer term data yet? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if there was some way uh, that we could have a little time machine here and know <laughs> that 10 years later, there were no really long term adverse events, uh, we'd all feel better about it. But what we can say is that that has simply not been the case for other vaccines, and there's no reason to think that it should be here. So while I can't say that risk is zero, because as a scientist, you're never supposed to say that until right. you have the data and we can't get the data, it's extremely low. And so where we're going here right now is just trying to balance uh, between the possible benefits and the possible risks. Let's be clear, the risks are not zero because we don't have that long-term data, but they're pretty darn close to that. And the benefits we know are saving lives, 95% effectiveness in preventing somebody from catching this virus 
which we know has now killed close to 600,000 people in the United States alone, and for which this vaccine is able to prevent those deaths. So it seems like on balance, a pretty, pretty good equation <laughs> to lead you to a conclusion of roll up my sleeve, let's do this. Definitely. So it sounds like you know, it went through the same process that you would go through any other vaccine. We just took out a lot of that dead time. Um, and we have no other reason to believe when we've done this with other vaccines that five or 10 years down the road, there would be additional problems. Now, That's this right. is still a new mechanism. Like you said, this is, these are the first mRNA vaccines. Do we have any data in previous testing of these vaccines, the, the mRNA mechanism, long-term data on those? Um, not in humans, uh, but certainly uh, lots in experimental animals. No evidence uh, that this has other surprising effects, uh, that it gets to other parts of the body, uh, that it causes infertility, which is one of the rumors mm -hmm. that's been out there for which we have uh, no evidence. No evidence that it's harmful in pregnancy, which is another concern a lot of people have had because we didn't run the trials on pregnant people because mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been the place to start when you're testing out something. But we are running those trials now. And by mm -hmm. the way, the evidence since 160 million people have now received at least one dose of one of these mRNA vaccines. And a lot of them were pregnant people. We can say mm -hmm. tens of thousands of pregnancies appear to have gone just fine uh, after immunization. And that should be reassuring. And maybe it's worth pointing out also that pregnant women have a higher risk of getting more severely ill if they get COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, their risk of ending up in the ICU or even dying is substantially higher than a non-pregnant person. So. Uh, again, trying to do the balance here, benefits versus risks, and every pregnant person should talk to their OBGYN about this, but I think the balance of evidence would say it's very much on the side of getting immunized. And by the way, that means you're also passing on those antibodies to the baby. Your first gift uh, to, to the baby is immunization against SARS-CoV-2. Yes, definitely. Um, and, and like you mentioned, too, it seems like there's no impact that we know of on fertility either. So there were women enrolled in the trials who then later on went to become pregnant and doesn't seem yes. to have affected their ability to become pregnant later. As everything we've seen, it had no effect on either men or women. Um, that is not what you'd call a very large controlled trial because it was pretty much now just collecting data on those 160 million people who've been immunized, but there's no signal there to suggest there's any impact on fertility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know that is a big concern, a common one that I've gotten questions about. And I think bringing it back, like you just did to the risk benefit, you know, there is a lot, still a lot of unknown, but there's a known risk of getting COVID during pregnancy um, that can have a significant impact. So at the end of the day, that's what we have to weigh. And we're not always so good at this idea of risk and benefits. Sometimes <laughs> we seem to sort of adopt a view that any risk at all is just unacceptable. Well, life doesn't offer you very many choices <laughs> like that. I mean, if you decide that you're going to take an aspirin to try to prevent uh, cardiovascular disease, which certainly many people in your practice probably are doing, uh, okay, you might have induced a GI bleed in that circumstance. In fact, the risk of that is a whole lot higher than anything we're talking about in terms of hypothetical vaccine risks but maybe we don't quite think about it in those same terms. Mm -hmm. For a vaccine, again, risks are not gonna be quite zero, but from what we know, very close to that. But the benefits, life-saving benefits are profound. Can we just talk about young people a minute here? Yes, let's focus on young people, sure. 
You know, I just saw some data yesterday that while the new cases of COVID-19 are blessedly dropping across the country, pretty much in all 50 states, that most of that is accounted for by the people who got vaccinated, who aren't getting sick. Mm-hmm. If you calculate what is the likelihood of an unvaccinated person getting COVID-19, it hasn't changed much because mm-hmm. the virus is still out there. Still out there. Most of those, frankly, are younger people because something like 85% of people over 65 have gotten at least one dose. So they got the message that they're at higher risk. They've done uh, what you might hope they would, roll up their sleeve, and we're in a much better place. Look at who's in the hospital now with COVID-19. The age has dropped very significantly from a few months ago, pre-vaccination, where it was mostly older people. Now it's younger people, under 65, even in their 30s or even 20s. And some of those people are very sick. And as you uh, also know well, some of those people who didn't get that sick acutely aren't getting better as quickly as you would think for a respiratory virus. This so-called long COVID syndrome is a reality, a reality that may affect as many as 10 or even 30% of people who got COVID. And that includes people who were not hospitalized, who weren't that sick, but just can't seem to bounce back. People who are not back at work yet, people who have brain fog and having trouble focusing on schoolwork or whatever, that's preventable also with the vaccine. So. Talking to young people, if you think, based on what you've heard, that this is not a big deal for you if you're young and healthy, well, think again. It's not as big a deal as if you were an unvaccinated 80-year-old, but it's still potentially a serious illness that could massively interfere with your life plans. And of course, you are also the one who is potentially likely to get the virus and spread it to other people. So. Mm-hmm. Vaccination is not just about yourself. Uh, It's also about protecting people around you. Again, look at the benefits and the risks. Risks seem to be really small. Benefits, even for a young person, are substantial. And it's no longer difficult uh, to find a place to get vaccinated. So the idea that, oh, I don't have time for this, and I'm going to have to stand in line, not anymore. (laughs) Go to vaccines.gov, and you'll figure out how quickly you can get immunized. Today, tomorrow, it's easy now. There are no lines, and people are ready to serve you. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest arguments I see from sort of my listener population is mostly those who are doing CrossFit. And at least initially, I think it was a, a, you know, it's a very logical argument of, okay, I'm young, I'm healthy, I exercise, I don't have any chronic disease, I'm a normal weight, you know, my risk if I get COVID is pretty low of having a severe um, course where I need hospitalization or have risk of dying. However, now what we're learning, as you just mentioned, long COVID is a real risk, especially in this younger, healthier population, um, and, you know, can really impair quality of life for a long time. Uh, can you talk a little bit more just about what kind of symptoms people are having and how it could impact impact their life with long COVID? It's quite a heterogeneous collection of symptoms, and it's quite puzzling. And we don't yet really understand what the mechanism is uh, for this virus infection to have all these lingering symptoms. People do talk about this cognitive fuzziness. Uh, people call it brain fog. 
And you can measure that by various tests of cognitive function where people have lost something here in terms of their quickness, their ability to focus and concentrate and memory recall seems to be injured a little bit. Something's happened there in the brain, maybe as a consequence of the immune response to the virus. Maybe these are little blood clots, which we know this virus is very good at engineering uh, when it gets into your body. Uh, maybe it's something else we haven't discovered yet, but it's quite real. And then there's the fatigue, uh, which people do talk about to the point of really being almost couch-ridden or bed-ridden and finding out that exercise makes it worse, uh, that you try to get over this and instead you knock yourself back uh, for a couple of days uh, just by trying to do something. Uh, there are palpitations, uh, clearly something going on cardiac, and we are able to show by various scans that some of these people have myocarditis. Um, there is shortness of breath that is a little hard to pin up, pin down, but in some instances, if you measure by the way in which oxygen is being absorbed using something called DLCO, that it's abnormal, that even though you didn't seem to get that sick, your lungs are not back to normal yet. And this can linger for weeks and weeks, and I'm not sure, again, because it's a new disease, just what is the long-term consequence? But for some of these people, it's been absolutely disruptive of everything they were trying to do. Just when they thought they'd gotten through it, uh, they weren't. Mm -hmm. Do you know approximately, I've seen numbers all over, all over the place about what the risk is of long COVID or, or how many people are likely to get that. What's the, the current understanding? Well, they are all, all over the map. Uh, the people who are sickest, particularly in the ICU, uh, have the highest incidence of long-term effects. Some of that is sort of the ICU syndrome, for whatever reason got you there. People who are not hospitalized, it's still in the neighborhood of 10% uh, by most of the studies. And when you consider how many people have had this illness, that's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in the United States alone that have long COVID right now, most of whom didn't expect that was going to be part of this. You don't want to be one of those. NIH is engaged now in a very large study to enroll tens of thousands of COVID survivors to really try to understand exactly what is going on here and how to help those people and how to prevent it in people who haven't gotten the illness yet, because there's so much we don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to shift to just talking a little bit bigger picture about um, COVID-19 and the pandemic and kind of what some of the things that it's teaching us as a culture and as a, as a world, really. Um, you know, we just talked about long COVID, but there, are, there is definitely data to show that those who are generally healthier, who have sort of more metabolic reserve and more resilience, people who are normal weight, who don't have chronic disease, who are exercising, who have good relationships, stress reduction, eating whole foods, all those kind of things are less likely to have severe infection or less likely to be hospitalized and, and less chance of dying from COVID. And we know this to be true with other infections too, right? Individuals who have chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease, if they get sick with the flu or something else, they're much more likely to get really sick because they just don't have right. the reserve. Right. Um, now we, and we also know that that these chronic metabolic diseases have been sort of an epidemic of their own, although at a much slower scale, more sort of indolent scale, because you don't see it happening as rapidly as you do an infectious disease. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, for me, looking at the pandemic from a high level and gosh, what is this trying to teach us? Almost kind of looking at it from a spiritual level too. What is trying to teach us? One of the things is one, it's, 
it got us all to slow down. It got us all to focus on relationships and spending time with people who are important to us and realizing how valuable um, that social interaction is. Um, and also really, I, I think it was trying to teach us to take care of ourselves, right? To eat good food, to exercise, to focus on the things that are important. Um, and I think that, you know, some people have been frustrated by the, the sort of lack of emphasis on these things, like the nutrition and the exercise and the sleep and using COVID as an opportunity to help people change their lifestyle behaviors. Um, because it's not really an either or, right? It's not, it's not like just focus on masks and distancing and vaccines or just focus on being healthy. It's we need both. Um, and we need both in a big way. And so how do you respond to that? Or what, what kind of, um, how can you put that into context in terms of everything else that obviously the governments have been working on and doing for this pandemic? Well, that's a great point. Um, we do need acutely uh, to do all the public health measures possible to try to keep this virus from spreading to more people and taking more lives. And so the masking and the social distancing and now the vaccines have just been critical. But this is also, as you just said, a wake up call uh, to the fact that the state of our nation is not particularly impressive when it comes to our overall health. We have lots of chronic illnesses that make people more susceptible and certainly the epidemic of obesity in the United States, which has been dramatic over the course of the last 35 years, is one of the reasons why we have seen this virus uh, take such a heavy toll on so many people, because that is one of the highest risks. And of course, obesity also tips over your risk for diabetes and hypertension, which are themselves risks. So yeah, if you wanted evidence that we are kind of sitting ducks for something like this to come along and do even more damage than it otherwise would, well, here it is. So for you as a person who advocates for the whole person to be fit and healthy, this is a bit of a lesson, I suppose, that we all ought to try to learn from. I think I told you earlier, I was somebody in that uh, unfortunate, dissipated state myself mm -hmm. uh, 12 years ago. And uh, for me, it was actually the experience of doing some genetic analysis on myself because I was uh, very much at the forefront of trying to use precision medicine and discovering mm -hmm. that I had a lot of risks for diabetes in my DNA that I didn't know, I didn't expect okay. would be there. And it was a wake-up call and mm -hmm. found this personal trainer who now, now runs a gym and uh, also <laughs> corrected my diet, got rid of all those honey buns. Oh, I used mm -hmm. to love honey buns. <laughs> <laughs> and lost 35 pounds, which I've kept off ever since. And that doesn't mean my health is perfect either or my, uh, my health habits are perfect. But it was such an opportunity to actually approach life uh, from a positive perspective instead of sort of feeling like a, a victim of your own health habits. Hey, take charge. You're going to feel better about yourself if you do. But we as a nation haven't been very good at that. I think our messages to people about health maintenance often sound sort of uh, one size fits all, and maybe that's about somebody else. And our healthcare system really doesn't seem to pay much attention to prevention. It's all about let's treat yeah. you once you're already sick, which is upside down from where it should be. So yeah, wake up call, COVID-19 <laughs> in many ways. It is a wake up call. And thanks for sharing that. And probably like like many of us, once you changed some of those habits, you didn't realize how good you could feel. You just, I think like so many of us walking around, we just feel like, oh, this is normal how I feel every day. And 
don't realize that just some small changes, you can feel a lot better. Yeah. Now I can deadlift 250 and I can bench press 140 and I'm 71 years old and it makes me feel pretty good on a five o'clock in the morning workout. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh my gosh. That is so awesome. Uh, so everyone's going to be so excited to hear that. Wow. <laughs> um, what are, what thoughts do you have on how we can do better, you know, with our, our healthcare system and our messaging and, and trying to really move the needle and helping our population be healthier? Well, one is this idea of precision medicine, and I'm glad you're engaged in some of the leading edge of this as well, because I do think a lot of our prevention messages have been kind of easily shrugged off because they were so one size fits all and we're not one size and it doesn't all fit. And instead, to try to provide people with an individual kind of prescription of what their risks are, so you could focus on the things that are going to be most relevant. And that's not just about DNA, but DNA can help. But it's also about your lifestyle, your environmental exposures, your health behaviors, the kinds of things that you're susceptible to. So for you as a physician, I imagine when you're trying to advise somebody about how to maintain their health, assuming they are healthy, you're trying to factor in all of these things and trying to get to something that they'll go, yeah, that does kind of sound like me, mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to giving everybody, you know, this uh, sheet of things we should all do and which many of us figure out ways not to. We've got to move medicine into that space and we've got to mm -hmm. emphasize the prevention part of this as maybe the most important part of healthcare instead of the afterthought that it currently is. Absolutely. That saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is, is definitely true. You know, and if your listeners want to be part of figuring out how to do this best, we have this study which aims to enroll a million Americans in this long-term study of health and illness called All of Us. It's highly diverse. More than half the people are racial and ethnic minorities. But the goal is to have as partners a million people who will share their health experiences, uh, have their DNA sequenced, answer all kinds of questionnaires about their health behaviors, their environmental exposures, share their electronic health records under very careful confidentiality. And we are going to learn from that things that we otherwise would never know. I mean, it's taking the Framingham study from which we learned so much about cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. and, and let's do this for all diseases. And let's be a lot more diverse about it. And let's multiply the scale by about 40 fold. And then we'll, we'll learn something uh, yeah. on the path. So all you got to do is join all of if you want to okay. join up. And uh, we'd be really happy to have a lot of CrossFitters and a lot of regular people <laughs> come and take part. That's incredible. Uh, yes, I hope people will check it out. I will definitely go check it out because I haven't heard of that before. Um, and I love what you said too about just finding a more personalized or precision approach because I think that was one of the most frustrating things for me going through medical school was seeing when you have these short in primary care, you have these very short 15 minute appointments with people and you know, you just have time to say, well, start exercising more and eat better. And that's about all, all you have time for. And for most people, it, it, it means so much more and um, is going to facilitate more behavior change when it's personalized to them. And it is something that they enjoy or something that's meaningful or is going to help them reach the goals that are really important to them. So I think that's so true. And I think one of the, the amazing things that we're seeing in CrossFit too, is just how important it is to have the right people around you, the community who's going to support you in those behaviors, um, because it's hard to do all this stuff on your own. That's so true. Absolutely. 
Wonderful. Well, I do want to shift to talking a little bit about your book, The Language of God. So I read this book 12 years ago, actually. So probably around the same time that you had met your trainer. Um, It was the summer of 2009. It was the same time I started CrossFit, actually, too, that same summer. And I read that book and I read Mere Christianity. And I had a close friend who was my roommate in college and we shared bunk beds together and had a lot of deep talks (laughs) about uh, faith and Christianity. And I, you know, I had grown up Catholic, been brought up Catholic, but really straight away by the time I was in high school and had some English classes and learned about existentialism and all kinds of other things that made me just say, well, I don't really think I can buy this. I don't think I can believe in God. And, and I was always very science focused too. I loved math and science and I was, did biomedical engineering in undergrad. And that summer reading those books and having those experiences for the first time, it really, hit me and made sense. And I felt like I really did believe that God existed. And that was the first step in me in my faith journey. So thank you for writing it, number one. (laughs) And number two, um, I was wondering if you could just elaborate on why it was important for you to write and um, especially given your role as such a well-known scientist um, and also a man of faith. Well, I'm very touched that this book uh, reached out in a way that helped you uh, wrestle with the most important question that we ever really have a chance to ask. Is there a God and does God care about me? I didn't have an answer to that. Uh, I grew up in a home where faith wasn't practiced in any serious way. So I was an atheist by the time I got to graduate school in uh, chemistry. And then I went to medical school and realized my atheism was not providing much comfort as I sat at the bedside of wonderful North Carolina people who were facing the end of their lives and tried to imagine how I would handle that and figured I wouldn't be very good at it and got challenged by a patient of mine who asked me, doctor, what do you believe? And realized I had no answer to that. Um, So that forced a reconsideration of whether I'd really spent the time appropriate for an a question as important as the existence of God. And I figured I'd better shore up my atheism or I was going to get embarrassed again. And to my (laughs) surprise, after spending a couple of years, beginning with C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity Mm -hmm. and progressing to many other sources, I found it absolutely inescapable. Mm -hmm. That belief was the rational choice. Atheism was the irrational choice. And then I met the person of Jesus and realized that that was the answer to an awful lot of questions that otherwise I could not find answers to. So I became a Christian at age 27. And people said my head was going to explode because I was already studying genetics, uh, which was a pretty fundamental science about humans. Mm-hmm. And they were sure the conflict between science and uh, words in the Bible would ultimately result in my having to walk away from uh, one of them or maybe both. But it never happened because (laughs) I find incredible, satisfying, joyful harmony between science and faith. They ask different questions. Science asks, how do things work? And faith asks, why does it matter? Mm -hmm. I want to be able to ask both those questions and have a chance of seeking answers. And it became clear to me that there's this, particularly in the United States, uh, this sense, sometimes very openly described and sometimes just hinted at that science and faith are simply locked in some interminable conflict and you have to choose one or the other. And I didn't find that as to be at all true for myself. And it broke my heart seeing people who were really torn up by this 
Mm-hmm. Hence, ultimately writing this book, putting my own thoughts out there, which I thought about 12 people would read, uh, but it turned mm-hmm. out that it must have been sort of in a place that a lot of people were searching for a synthesis, a harmony, and it's not that hard to find. <laughs> so there it was. And following that, because I then got a lot of follow-ups, started a foundation called BioLogos, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S, and you can look that up on the web, a foundation that now in its 12th year is just flourishing as a place for people to come and have a civil, thoughtful, deeply spiritual and scientific debate about how these worldviews can actually inform each other. Um, I'm not part of that foundation because I had to leave it when I became a presidentially appointed director of NIH, but it's wonderful to see that that's become possible. And I think now there's a lot more resources. There are a lot more thoughtful people writing about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a community you know, that will say to you, if you want to be somebody who believes in science and medicine, and you also want to be a serious believer in the Bible's truths, you can do that. This is good. It works. <laughs> it's beautiful. And I've heard you say before that for you, science is a way of worshiping. And I think that's so true is when you have that lens, you know, it's amazing. I mean, that's what first interested me in medicine was learning about basic biology and how cells work and on the microscopic level, all the things that are happening in our bodies every day. And it was just awe-inspiring. And it yes. just makes you appreciate more, you know, how all of this works together. Um, exactly. I'm so with you on that. And some people say to me, well, you know, as a scientist, you're figuring out how things work. Doesn't that take the awe away? It was like, uh, no, <laughs> actually, it's the reverse. The more right. we learn about the intricacies and the complexity and the beauty of mm-hmm. life, the more my awe goes up and the more I feel like I am kind of in a cathedral worshiping, even though I'm in a laboratory at the time. Absolutely. Whether it's, you know, the, the human body or whether it's nature or whether how we interact with our planet, all of these things are yes. just incredible. Yes. We touched on this a little bit before, but any additional thoughts on just thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic from both a scientific perspective and a spiritual perspective? Um, what lessons or learnings do you think we can all take away from this? So as a believer, it is challenging when suffering uh, arises to try to understand the meaning uh, for this. That's uh, the the problem of theodicy, as it's been called, Mm -hmm. uh, which is probably the hardest problem for a believer or a (laughs) non-believer to try to wrestle with. Why should good people suffer? Mm -hmm. And yet we are promised as believers that God is with us in those sufferings. Uh, Psalm 46, uh, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. COVID-19 has been trouble, but I feel this very much sense that God is, is with us along the way. And I, and I worship a God who died on the cross and knows about suffering. So I don't have to explain what that's about. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think the way in which our response to COVID-19, whether as individuals reaching out to each other or as scientists uh, developing vaccines uh, that are saving lives, Uh, That is what we are called to do. And when it works, that's an answer to prayer, too. I think Mm -hmm. seeing these vaccines come forward uh, as a way of uh, preventing even greater suffering and death is one of the ways I think God has helped us uh, through science that God makes possible (laughs) because it's an ordered universe that we've been given the privilege of understanding. 
If people are praying for answers, I think vaccines could very well be uh, a solid response to that. And that is now available for people who are still looking for protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think, you know, especially coming out of 2020 being such a hard year for so many people in so many different ways. Um, you know, I do always just go back to what you just mentioned, where, you know, God always teaches through pain and suffering, and there's always a lesson. And you see so many great things that have happened in history or people who have been able to make great contributions. It's typically through a lot of challenge and suffering and pain, and then they come out stronger on the other end. And so just having that reference, I think is helpful and, and being able to ask those questions when you're in the middle of it, you know, why is this happening? What am I learning from it? How, how am I going to become a better person? How are we going to become a better country, world, um, people? How are we going to learn more to help more people? Um, and we're going to still continue to discover what those things are along the way. But Yeah. Lewis talks about God whispers to us when things are going well. Mm-hmm. When things are going badly, uh, God shouts. It's his <laughs> megaphone uh, to rouse a world that wasn't yes. paying attention. Well, yes. okay, we're paying attention now. Right. We're paying attention on all levels now for last year. Um, Amazing. Well, I do want to wrap up with three questions that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. So first one is what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Okay. um, I got that one. Uh, First of all, exercise. We talked about that a little Mm -hmm. bit. Uh, Consistent, both in terms of cardio and weightlifting, uh, keeping my body in the best shape it can be. It's like... um, it lifts my spirits and it makes me feel strong to face whatever's coming. Right. And I got to work on my deadlift and my bench press for next time we talk. <laughs> I doubt that. Uh, uh, secondly, it's to stay spiritually in tune uh, with faith. Um, I get up at five in the morning and I usually spend a little time reading Bible or reflecting or meditating on something that relates to my spiritual experience, my relationship with God, that anchors me uh, for the rest of the day. And third, I find for me, music is just a wonderful way when the stress is really piled up, and believe me, it's piled up a lot in the last Mm -hmm. 17 months, to just take a break, get up from my home desk right here, walk around the corner uh, to my baby grand piano and just play some music for 10 minutes and somehow that does something. It lifts you out of the stress experience that you're in the yeah. middle of into something where you kind of feel like, okay, it's going to be all right. We're going to get yeah. through this. Life yeah. is still beautiful. Music is still beautiful. That's <laughs> for me, a really good form of therapy. I love that. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm not as musically gifted myself, but I've, I've found that a lot this year too, especially just turning on some music, playing it on my phone or putting in some headphones, closing my eyes for a few minutes. It can make a world of difference. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's one thing that you think would have an impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on? Oh, boy. Um, I'm afraid it's uh, lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most common answer I get to that question. <laughs> yeah, I bet it is. And it's probably a reflection of our times. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, since COVID-19 came along for me as the director of the largest supporter of medical research in the world, uh, trying to steer this amazing ship of scientific discovery in the right direction and not run on the rocks, it's been it's been like I was an intern again. <laughs> I was like, I'm, wow. I'm in this 100-hour-a-week kind of zone yeah. as yeah. far as what it requires. 
And that means that uh, hours that maybe should have been sleeping have taken a hit. And I know that's not healthy, and I know it's in the long term uh, bad for my brain, and yet I have not been able to figure out how to be more efficient uh, with the time requirements. So Mm -hmm. that's something as maybe things are getting a little better now, I would like (laughs) to be able to recover is some sort of reasonable sleep schedule. Yes. And as you know, it just highlights again, there's different seasons of life and there's ebbs and flows and all these things that have to do with our health. If we were perfect on everything all the time, that would be boring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, my last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you? Um, it's a life that has real purpose. I think that's what we're all looking for, is a sense that even though we might be uh, struggling, uh, we might be exposed to stress, it's about something that matters. And maybe that's about family. I haven't talked about mine, but that's a big, important part. Uh, my amazing wife, uh, who is like the strongest anchor of stability and um, a sunny disposition (laughs) than you can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. Or my daughters, uh, two wonderful uh, young women who aren't that young anymore, and my my five grandkids. That is meaningful. That ought to be part of a life, but also a sense of balance uh, between what you're trying to accomplish and uh, all the other aspects of what it means to be alive. But I uh, often think of Martin Luther King's uh, quote, uh, which is something like this, uh, life's most urgent and persistent question, what are you doing for others? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, defines a life of purpose. Mm-hmm. For you as a doctor, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, for the people around me who are scientists, most of them got interested in science because it was a detective story trying to discover things, but it was also because they wanted to help people. And mm-hmm. as long as you can say, I'm trying to answer life's most urgent and persistent question, mm-hmm. what am I doing for others with a positive, then I think you can weather a lot of storms. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, you have certainly weathered a lot of storms and led us through um, what seems like the the thick of this pandemic. So thank you so much for everything that you've done and all the sleep you've sacrificed (laughs) to be able to um, help us get to where we are today. And thank you for taking the time to have this conversation and just share more about what we know about vaccines and help inform people listening so that they can make the best decision for them. Um, And for the, again, the impact that you've had on my life and and the way that you've been such a leader in sharing your experience with spirituality and with science. So thank you so much, Dr. Collins. Thank you. And again, if there are people listening who maybe after hearing this think, yeah, it's time to get that vaccine, uh, go to vaccines.org. Or if you're on your cell phone, just punch in 438-829, 438-829, and then type in your zip code. And within one minute, you will get three locations that have vaccines ready to go (laughs) that you can get signed up to uh, get immunized today. Uh, So it's all easy to do now, 438-829. Perfect. And then we'll, have, we'll also link up to the website for all of us if people are interested in enrolling in that trial as well, too. Please do. Join all of us.org. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. I'm glad you are pursuing health. We <laughs> <I hope laughs> just all do it you. in the best way. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people. 